uh, Acts 16, 1 through 5. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconum. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he, wanted to, and he took him, and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. They also went on their way through the cities. Uh, they delivered to them uh, for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Amen. All right, you may be seated, and uh, I tell you what, isn't it a pleasure to read the Word of God standing when you're at church and in the congregation? There's a reason we do that, and that is to bring uh, reverence and recognition to the Word of God and the authority that has in our lives. So I would encourage, if you're watching this at home and online, uh, when we do stand here, I would encourage you to get to your feet too, if you are able, and uh, stand and read the Word of God with us and respect that authority in your own life. And then let's live it out together. And that's really one of the aims of this message. So I'm going to start out with a, a little bit of a story for you. It's a story about Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. And they went camping. And they, after dinner, fell asleep for the night. But just hours later, Holmes nudged his friend awake. And he said, Watson... Look up in the sky and tell me what you see. And Watson replied, Well, I see millions of stars, Holmes. Well, what does that tell you, Watson? He ponders for a moment, then he begins to speak. Astronomically, he said, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. And then astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in the Leo position. Horologically, I deduce at the time is approximately a quarter past three in the morning. Theologically, I could see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and we are insignificant. Meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. And feeling impressed with himself, he turns to his bunkmate Holmes and says, what does it tell you? And Holmes was silent for a moment. Then he said, Watson, you dimwit, someone has stolen our tent. <laughs> now, I am quite positive some of you are going to get that in about 20 minutes. And if I hear you laughing, then I'm going to understand why. But, you know, the whole reason I read that little fictitious story is to bring out this thing called observation. And if I did a little test, even right now, and I asked you to close your eyes and comment on the person nearest you what color hair they have, you probably are going to get that one right. But then if I were to ask you what kind of shirt are they wearing or what kind of pants are they wearing, and I drill a little bit deeper into the details, we're going to probably realize pretty quickly we're not nearly as observant as maybe we ought to be. No one observed like Sherlock Holmes, and it's a critical part of good Bible study. So that's what we're going to do. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the verses of Scripture that were just read, and we're going to walk through it, we're going to make some observations, and then we're going to make some applications. Let me give you a really quick freebie. If you want to understand a very simple but really effective way to study the Bible, 
do three things and do them in this order. Make observation, then you make interpretation, but then you make application. Observation, interpretation, application. We're going to do the first and the third today. So let's observe well from this passage, and we're going to see the ministry team that Paul begins to build, and we're going to observe first. So let's start with observation. First of all, let's get in your Bibles, all right? You got your Bibles open? If you're at home, please do this as well. So Acts chapter 16. Now I want you to look at verse 4 for a moment. Everybody look at your Bibles. And then I want you to look at the word they that's not only in verse 4, but that word they is in verse 6. And then I want you to observe and notice it's in verse 7. And then I want you to see that it's in verse 8. Now there's a reason you're going to do this because look at what happens in verse 10. All of a sudden that pronoun shifts from they to we. Now if you're not observant, you're going to miss the reason why. The reason is that Paul has been assembling his team. And in verse 10, the writer of the book of Acts joins his team. The writer is Luke. He also wrote a gospel according to Luke, the gospel of Jesus according to Luke. Now Luke is joining this team. Now why is this important? Because now Luke is not just historically writing Acts. He's not just relying on reports from interviews of eyewitnesses. Now Luke is an eyewitness. Luke is in the story. He now writes from the first person. And you're going to notice some details that really come out. Now, let's go back just a little bit. Look at chapter 15, verse 40. You probably don't even need to change the page in your Bible. Just look at verse 40, chapter 15. And you'll see that Paul and Silas begin to head out on a missionary journey. This now marks the second missionary journey of Paul. He goes out with now his ministry partner, Silas. But then in chapter 16, he's going to pick up a man, a young man named Timothy. And he's going to then include, or Luke's going to join him, and they've got four people now in their team. Now let me just comment on this for just a moment. We all know this, I'm not saying anything that you don't know and you know it experientially, that your team can either be a great thing or it can be a very bad thing. It can bring a lot of joy or it can take a lot of joy at work, in your neighborhood, or in projects, in your church, in your family even. I can tell you this, in our staffing team here at church, we've got an amazing team. We were just reflecting on this in our staff meeting, which are always on Mondays, or almost always on Mondays, and we were just reflecting how God in his wisdom has just brought the people that he has brought to our staffing team. It's just a joy to minister to them, minister with them, and minister through them to you. It's just a really a great team. So I can really understand what Paul is doing. He is, he is bringing together a team. And now all of a sudden we're introduced, and now the story starts really picking up. We are introduced to a young man named Timothy. Now let me give you a little fun fact. 15 years after Acts 16, after this event, Paul is going to write Timothy and it's going to be in the epistle of 1 Timothy. Paul is a pastor at this point. He is a pastor of, of the incredibly difficult church of Ephesus. 
Ephesus was a main church, a large church, a very difficult church. And he's a young man, and Paul writes to him, let no one despise you for your youth. Now the Greek word for youth in 1 Timothy 4.12 refers to anybody below 40 years of age. And that's surprising because that would not be how we would classify a youth or a young person. But in the Greek world, it was anybody below 40. So 15 years earlier, at the time of Acts 16, now we've got Timothy who most would agree he's likely in his very early 20s. So now we've got Paul, we've got Silas, Luke joins them, and this very young protege, this very young Christian in his early 20s joins the team. Now look at this because we're really talking a lot about Timothy in this message. And I'm going to take you very deep into what Paul was doing with him. So I'm going to ask that you really listen and really learn because it has direct implications backward to how Jesus mentored and trained his disciples and direct implication forward to our day and what we're doing here in Cornerstone. So Timothy had already developed a very good reputation among the brothers, that's what the text says, proving that age is no barrier to growing spiritually or doing great things to God. I hope you hear that. We've got some younger people here right now. Maybe some younger people are listening online. I want you to hear this really clearly. Your age, if you're young, your age is no obstacle to what God wants to do through you. He can and will do amazing things in your life and through your life if you will walk with him. Well, Timothy was walking with God. His mom and his grandmom had taught him the scriptures since he was a little boy. He's from the city of Lystra, where Paul and Barnabas had started a church. It is, by the way, the city where Paul was stoned and dragged out to a field left for dead. He recovers with his disciples around him, walks, probably staggers, back into the city of Lystra. What does he do? He begins preaching again. He begins discipling again. Paul is absolutely amazing. This, this is the city where that happened. So obviously, and certainly, Timothy heard all about it. Now notice his mom and dad. His mom's Jewish, his father's a Greek. They've got an interracial marriage. His father was a Greek in the, in the Greek language. That's in the imperfect tense. That means or implies his father's dead. He's no longer alive. He's out of the picture. He, and it also implies that he was not ever a believer. So we've got likely, as most would agree... Timothy, whose mom was a godly woman and grandmom, whose father was no longer in the picture and no, was never a believer. His Greek name, Timotheos, means honoring God. Theos is God, theology, the study of God, honoring God. That's what his name means, and certainly that was his character. But there was a problem with Timothy joining Paul's team. Now look what the text says. He was never circumcised. He had never been circumcised. Now, circumcision was practiced by the Jews, and it was done when male babies were eight days old. It was a sign. It was a covenant 
um, a covenantal sign, meaning that God had a unique promise. God made and binded himself, bound himself through an oath in Genesis 15 with his people, the Jewish people, the people of Israel. And the sign of that covenant, the sign of that promise was required of all Jewish boys. It was circumcision. But some had come to believe, Acts 15, 1, if you want to flip to there, Acts 15, 1, there were some in the new young church that believed that unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So now they're making circumcision a work. They're making circumcision something that you can do to be saved, and if you don't do it, you cannot be saved, and they're requiring some of these people for Gentiles, non-Jewish people, if you want to be saved, then you've got to get circumcised. But the church agreed in verse 11, Acts 15, they agreed that we believe that Jews will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. There is no work, just as Gentiles will. So the, the early church had a council, and they made a ruling. This is the first council of the early church. Several more to come. They made a ruling that you do not need to be circumcised to be saved. But a lot of the Roman Empire did not ever hear this. They haven't heard this yet. Some are still operating under the, the belief that you've got to get circumcised to be saved. So why did, Paul and Bar why did Paul and Silas go on this second missionary trip? Look at chapter 16, verse 4. It's very clear. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. You see, what they were doing is they're taking the results of this council and they're taking it all over Asia Minor. Asia Minor is modern Turkey, and they're telling everybody, you do not need to be circumcised to be saved. So why does he make Timothy get circumcised? Well, the answer is very clear, and it's in verse 3. Chapter 16, verse 3. It's because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. You see, Paul had a mindset that was being transferred into Timothy. Because the Greek people did not practice circumcision, because there were still Jews who were not yet saved, who did not yet know that you don't need to be circumcised to be saved, Paul said, Timothy, I want you to be circumcised so that you're not a stumbling block. Let Christ be the stumbling block. Don't let you be the stumbling block so that the Jews will listen, so that they will believe. And Paul's mindset that he is building into, transferring into Timothy. And let me, let me say something really quickly. It's a mindset that needs to be in you and it needs to be in me. And it is a terribly difficult mindset for an American to have. And it goes like this, 1 Corinthians 9. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Timothy, you need to be circumcised. He's an adult. He's in his early 20s. You know how pain, they didn't have anesthesia. You know how painful this is going to be. Timothy, you need to be circumcised for the sake of the gospel. Now, we're going to drill into that a little bit more. So let's go right into it. We've just did some observation. Just very simple. All I did was pull out of the text 
things that maybe you might miss if you read through it too quickly. Maybe some things in the background you might not have known. But we've been armed now with information. Now we're going to go to mainly application, a little bit of interpretation. Let's go to application. What kind of character did Paul look for in his team? Now, let me tell you something really, really quickly. This is the same character that we're looking for with anybody that gets involved in leadership at Cornerstone. All three of them are literally stated in our methodology. They are being used right now. We're in a three-month program of training men to become board members, deacons and elders. They're being trained right now in these three words that you're about to hear form the basis of the same character you're going to see in how Paul raised up Timothy as well. Number one, teachable. See, if you want to be in, in a leadership position of a church, if you want to be a person who is entrusted with responsibility in this church, you've got to be teachable. Look at verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Now, you might be reading that and going, man, I don't see anything about a teachability heart there. Where is their teachability in this? Well, let me take you back to the amazing, rich world of first century disciple making. This is, this is probably going to open up your minds, I would imagine, to stuff that maybe you've never heard of before. This is so amazing. You see, Jewish communities hired a school teacher. Every Jewish town hired a school teacher who would become respectfully known as a rabbi, now listen, or a Torah teacher. Rabbis were actually more known as the title Torah teachers until A.D. 70. This Torah teacher, this rabbi, would teach Jewish boys and girls of four to five years old. That's when school started for Jewish children. In a school called Beth Sefer, Beth Sefer, it means the house of the book. What did they do at age four and five all the way to age 10? They studied the Torah. The Torah, are, the Torah is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the, the books that Moses wrote. And then at age 10, now watch this, the best of the male students went on to Beth Talmud, where they studied the prophets and the commentaries, the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, all while learning their father's trade. So from 10 to 15, the girls were done with schooling. Their schooling didn't go on. They were about to get married in about two years, believe it or not. Jewish children got married usually between 12 and 14 years old. The really bright students went on to secondary school, equivalent to, say, our high school, but they had to study their father's trade concurrently or at the same time. But here's what I'm going to tell you now that makes chapter 16, verse 3, and Paul asked Timothy to accompany him. It's going to make it really stand out. You see, if a student was incredibly exceptional, then at age 15 or 16, they entered the third. This would be your graduate school, basically. They entered Beth Bet Midrash, it means house of study. Bet is house, Midrash study. And here is what is important for verse 3. You see, in Bet Midrash, the student would always seek out a rabbi, a Torah teacher, and ask permission to study with him and become his disciple or 
what was called a Talmud. A group of disciples were a Talmudie. A singular disciple was a Talmud. Torah teachers never, listen, they never sought out students. Students would go to them, and then the rabbi or the Torah teacher would undergo or, or make that student undergo a test, an incredibly rigorous interview, even quoting the entire book of Genesis. There were children by age 10 that could quote the entire first five books of the Bible, believe it or not. So the rabbi would have a rigorous interview, and you had to pass it. If you did not pass it, he would tell you, and I'm nearly quoting it, go home, learn your father's trade, get married and make babies, and live a long, joyous, prosperous life. That meant you failed the test. He wouldn't take you as a student. He wouldn't allow you to become his disciple or his Talmudim, or his Talmudi, one of his Talmudi. But if you passed it, then he would say two words in Hebrew, three words in English. Come, follow me. That meant you passed. And if you passed, and if you heard those three words, then you would leave home and you would live and you would learn and you would travel with the rabbi until you were age 30. When you became a rabbi... You see, Jesus shocked the Jewish rabbinical world. He reversed the normal process of his day. He took the initiative to choose his disciples, his Talmudi. None of them came to him that were part of his 12 disciples. In fact, those who did come to him, he almost always turned them away. He didn't choose the smartest and most talented he chose those who would be his disciples who were teachable. You know what the word disciple means? I'm going to tell you something that you ought to write in your book because you're going to see disciple all through the gospel, write it in your Bible. It means learner. That is the meaning of the word disciple, learner. You had to be teachable. Paul took young Timothy with him and taught him to be a disciple of Jesus. Paul initiated it with Timothy, just like the great rabbi Jesus did with his disciples. Now, the second character of Timothy is humility. He was humble. Number one, he was teachable because he wanted to be, he did go with Paul. He wanted to be a disciple. He was a learner, but now we're going to see that he was humble. Don't you wonder again, I mentioned this already, but don't you wonder how amazing it was for Timothy to agree as a early 20-year-old to get circumcised as an adult for the sake of not offending the Jewish people. Would you get tattoos, friends, removed if a group you were witnessing to was offended by them? Would you take off your hat in a building if it was necessary to protect your testimony in Christ? If your shirt was offending people that you were serving, would you change it? Would you agree to wear a cover-up shirt if others were offended at the amount of skin that you were showing? Do you see what humility was in the heart and the character of Timothy? And do you see why in our American pragmatism, our individualism, our adherence to our personal rights, why this stands out so starkly? You know, I was on a mission trip 
to Haiti in 1989, and I had let my hair grow pretty long. It was way over the back of my collar. And uh, I got over to Haiti. It was a two-week trip, and about four to five days into that trip, the trip leader came to me. We were staying at a German hotel in Capatia. And he came to me privately like he should have, and he said, Tim, I need to tell you something. The Haitian people are talking about your hair. It's offensive to Haitian people for a man to have long hair. And I'm going to ask you to cut it. And I brought some scissors with me. I was furious, very immature, but I was angry. I'm only going to be here another seven to eight days. Why do I need to cut my hair for something so silly because hair is offending somebody? And the Lord began to really work and really work and really work in my heart. By that afternoon, I said, cut my hair. I can't let it offend and get in the way of the gospel. You see, it takes humility for Timothy to consent to to circumcision. And again, it takes us back to rabbinical discipleship. For the disciple, listen to this, was to have a total and complete submission to his rabbi or he could not become his Talmud. When a student became a disciple, he gave all of his allegiance to the rabbi, even over his own father. Rabbis were Torah teachers, but some became great ones. Meaning, to become a great one, to become a great rabbi, it means that you gained authority called semicha. Semicha means authority. And it enabled them now to make their own interpretations from the law of God. Before that, all rabbis quoted other rabbis. They derived their authority from other great ones. But when you became a great one and you gained and were given Semicha, then you now had permission to make your own interpretations of the law. You see, Jesus had Semicha. You know where he gained it? It was at his baptism. When the dove, the Spirit of God in the form of a dove came down anointing him and a voice from the heavens, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He gained authority or rather it was publicly given to him, given to him in that moment and he gained Semicha. He gained now the freedom to make his own interpretations of the law. In fact, he said, Jesus did in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not love less, you know in the English it means hate, or the word is hate. It really says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, it means love less in the Greek. And wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even in his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, you've got to love your rabbi more than your father, your mother, your wife, your children, and your own life. Or no rabbi would allow you to be his disciple. That was part of the interview. That was part of the test. You see, the rabbi became the highest human authority in the disciples' life, and he had a clear goal. You know what the rabbi's goal for every one of his disciples? It was as true for Jesus as it was for any other Jewish rabbi or Torah teacher, and he says it, Jesus does, in Luke 6, verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. 
You see, today, if you're in school, the goal, your goal, is to get a passing grade. But in rabbinical discipleship, the goal was not just to get a passing grade. It was to become like your rabbi in every way. There are historical documents that I've read where there was a rabbi that had injured his leg years before. He walked with a limp, and he could be seen walking along a dusty road with a limp. And all of his Talmudi, all of his disciples walking in single file behind him, having somehow mysteriously developing the same exact limp. That was by design, friends. That was the goal of rabbinical discipleship. You make your disciple exactly like your rabbi. Just like his rabbi. Paul was well within his rights to expect Timothy to submit to his authority and be circumcised. And that submission is something very difficult for us to do in our culture. Clearly, Paul has come alongside this young man. He is discipling him, and it leads us to one more aspect that we need to know about Timothy's heart, and that is faithful. Not only is he teachable and humble, He's faithful. These are the th same three things that we are looking at. When we put people into positions of leadership in this church, faithful. When a Torah teacher or a rabbi believed you were ready, and it would not be sooner than 30, you do know what Luke 3 says, right? That Jesus was 30 years old when he entered public ministry. That was rabbinical law in that day. You would not become a rabbi, but when you were ready, you would not become a rabbi before 30. When you were ready, your rabbi would move you from being a Talmud of his to now being a rabbi yourself, and you would continue the same process with Talmudie that come to you that your rabbi did to you, but now you are there to make your disciples just like your rabbi. You were expected to do what Paul later told Timothy in 2 Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is all through Paul's writings, this pattern. It's because Paul grew up in rabbinical discipleship. That was, that was the way that you made disciples, and it's the way that we make them today. Jesus expected the same. Look at what he said in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, what is a yoke? A lot of us think maybe it's that wooden cross member that unites two oxen together so they can pull a plow. That's not the yoke that Jesus was talking about. No, the yoke here is the rabbi's body of teaching. It's his own interpretation. He said, take my interpretation upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and lowly of heart. See, when rabbis became great ones with semicha authority, they taught their yoke to their disciples. And Paul said to Timothy, I've taught you the gospel, I've taught you the pattern of sound teaching that I learned from my rabbi Jesus, and now I want you to go and teach it to others. Be faithful, do not deviate from it, but follow it as a pattern and teach it to other people. Now, I've often asked you over the last six to eight months, and I want you to really, really think about this. 
How many of you are making disciples of Jesus Christ? You don't need to raise your hand. Just allow the question to sort of ping pong around inside of your mind, inside of your heart. And then I've always asked you a follow-up question. How many of you have ever had somebody intentionally come alongside you impersonally and teach the pattern of sound teaching to you so that you could become like your great rabbi Jesus? And the alarming truth is this, that I think 95% of our church has never really had somebody intentionally and relationally come alongside and make a disciple of them. Therefore, when we're encountering the word of God to say, go and make disciples, we're knowing, yes, we should be doing that, but I don't know how to do it. You see, this is what our church is reversing. This is what you're going to see over the next year as more and more of our discipleship groups get started. You see, one cannot help but compare young Timothy to another young man, Mark, whom Paul would not take on his missionary journey because Mark deserted him previously. And remember that the gospel would get hold of Mark one day, and he would be an invaluable part of Paul's team. But this was not that day. Paul had tasted bitterness with Mark. He tasted the pain of people deserting him in ministry. In fact, let me take you forward. He's going to write in 2 Timothy, just before he is put to death and martyred, Paul will write, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He's going to write, even in that same book, a few verses later, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. You see how important faithfulness is? Not just teachability and humility, but faithfulness. See, when the going gets tough, the unfaithful get going and they stay gone. But not Timothy. He was faithful. And because of that, he became one of Paul's greatest ministry partners he would ever have. This young man would become a giant in the Christian faith. Now, something you may not realize about Timothy is what I told you a little bit earlier. He gained the helm of a church that the Apostle John once led and pastored, the church of Ephesus. That was, that was the Apostle John's church. It became Timothy's church, and it was a very difficult church. If you want to know how difficult, then go to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and you will read how difficult that church was. Clues are there for us that we can see that Timothy was not the most confident pastor in the world. Did you know that? Just before Paul died, he said to Timothy, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For God gave, gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Friends, you don't say things like that if Timothy didn't struggle with timidity and fear. 
Remember, Timothy, Paul is saying, God enabled you to pastor. It was confirmed when I anointed you. So don't give in to anxiety. Don't give in to self-doubt. And by the way, Timothy, for that nervous stomach of yours, 1 Timothy 5.23, no longer drink just water. Use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. You see, timid, anxiety-prone people often have physical issues. Yet despite these struggles, Timothy was faithful to the very end, which according to Fox's Book of Martyrs came shortly after A.D. 95. Here's what the book says. As the pagans were about to celebrate a feast called Catagogion, which is in Ephesus, by the way, this occurred in the city of Ephesus. Timothy, meeting the procession, severely reproved them for their ridiculous idolatry, which so exasperated the people that they fell upon him with their clubs and beat him in so dreadful a manner that he expired of the bruises two days after. That is the tradition of the martyrdom of Timothy. He sees a pagan parade dedicated to a false god. He runs straight into the Ephesus mob, the Ephesian mob, and he says, you cannot do this. This is not real. And they beat him. His disciples dragged him away from there, and he dies. See, this was Timothy. He was humble, teachable, faithful. He, taught, he was taught the word of God from a little boy, and that word never left him. He was discipled by Paul to become like his great rabbi, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm coming to the end. I'm only going to be another minute, minute and a half. What do you do with this? Observation, interpretation, application. Well, one of the things, at least, is to walk out of here realizing the richness of disciple-making. And that it saturates, disciple-making does, it saturates the pages of the Bible, which is why we are shifting our entire church to make disciples who know how to make disciples. In a year from now, two years maybe at the outset, this church is going to look very, very different than it does now. You're going to get a finger on your shoulder, tapping away, going, I'd like to disciple you. Or if you are ready, you're going to get a tap on the shoulder saying you're ready to go disciple somebody else. We're going to train you how to do that. And we don't come up with a new methodology. We're taking it straight from the Sermon on the Mount, straight from rabbinical discipleship. And the goal is to help you become like Jesus so that you can in turn help others become like Jesus as well. But it won't work, friends. Listen to me, please. You will not be effective if you are not humble, teachable, and faithful. Now let me ask you to do something. And I've had to do this even this last week. I would ask you, but I know it's a, a lesson in futility, I would ask you to look inward and discern are you humble, teachable, faithful? But the problem is you have a heart like I have a heart, which is deceptive and wicked, Jeremiah 17, 10, or verse 9. So you really are in a position to ask that question and answer it honestly, and neither am I. 
So here's what I am going to ask you to do. Would you find somebody, even maybe tonight or tomorrow, before it gets too far away from this sermon, would you find somebody that really is a godly person who will really tell you the truth? And if you're the one being asked to tell the truth, do not shy away from this. Do not be a party to ongoing sin. And ask that person, do you see in me true humility? Do you see in me true faithfulness? Do you see in me true teachability? You may have faithfulness without the humility. And you may have the humility, but kind of missing on the teachability. Ask. Ask someone who would tell you the truth. And if you're the one being asked to tell the truth, tell the truth and do it graciously. And let the Spirit of God be used to partner with your own hearts because you will not be effective in disciple-making. Without humility, teachability, and faithfulness, you would not even find a rabbi that would take you as his Talmud. Are you willing to follow someone more spiritually mature than you? Will you learn from that person as he or she trains you to be more like Jesus? And will you be faithful to your very end? If you are young, be careful. Be careful. Do not say, I will deal with those questions when I get older. Timothy never said that. He was godly from his youth. And the Lord used him in unbelievable ways. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for what we have learned even about rabbinical disciple-making. What a world, Lord. How exciting was it to see how the Jewish people created the way to make disciples. But Lord, it's even more exciting to see how your son took that same method and made it so much better. And he is doing that with us now. And Lord, we need people to disciple us, to make us like our great rabbi, Jesus. And we need to be getting to a point where we are discipling other people to make them like their great rabbi, Jesus. Lord, if there is anybody here that has been a Christian for a while and is not personally, intentionally, making disciples. Lord, I pray that you would give them such a desire to do this and a boldness that they would tap on the shoulders of other people and say, I'd like to invest in you. I want to train you. I want to make you a disciple of Jesus. And then at one point, I'm going to release you so you could do the same thing with other people. Lord, would you use us? Lord, cultivate in us humility, teachability, and faithfulness. Let the character of Timothy be our character. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.